Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, writer and apologist I Ching Thomas talks about Chinese culture, the teachings of Confucius, and the game-changing differences that Jesus brings. I Ching, in Jesus' day in that Greco-Roman world, what sort of influence do people have within the community? Well, I guess it depends. I mean, I mean, you're looking at the, the Greco-Romans as well as the Jews. Um, for the Jews, I think because it's a, it was a very patriarchal and communal sort of base culture. So for you to even have any influence on anyone, you would be someone who's like a village elder or a religious elder. Um, but for the Greco-Roman, I think it's slightly different because um, the Greco-Roman culture was very honor-based, honor-shame-based. So for you to even have any influence on anyone, you, ought, you have to be someone who has status, someone who, who is wealthy, or you are a government official of sort. You know? um, so I, I, I think it really depends on whether you're a Jew or a Greco-Roman. But uh, definitely, I think the idea of um, influencing the community is slightly different from what we know today. What about in the area of, say, human rights? Did, did, is there a way of saying whether people had human rights or equality between people? In those days? Yes. Um, I guess for the Jews, within the Jewish worldview, I think there is a basis and a foundation for human rights. Because after all, if you look at the Old Testament, it teaches about how you know humanity is made in the image of God and, and just loving God and loving your neighbor. It, it's all there. But I think whether it was um, necessarily lived out and a concept that they, it's constantly something that they uh, are before them, perhaps not so. But what is really interesting that is that um, perhaps it's not something that's all, always before them, but because the Jews held very closely to their religion and what they believed, they ought, how they ought to live, I think um, equality was in a way um, perhaps not in the same way that we experience it today, but in a way they're forced to treat one another equal. But of course, nonetheless, as you read some of the narratives in the, Old, in the New Testament, you see that you know, they may not necessarily t treat each other that way. But of course, when it comes to the Gentiles, there's a clear divide. You know, the way the Jews treated the Gentiles, they were the unclean people. You know, they were the pagans, the ungodly. And they are, of course, a different category altogether. So, so it's very interesting when you ask about human rights. And for the Jews, to a certain extent, yes, but then it may not necessarily apply to certain groups of people. How, how did what Jesus say speak into that attitude? I think that was exactly what Jesus was countering when he was, you know, talking to a lot of his disciples, teaching his disciples. I mean, a lot of what Jesus taught was really countercultural, but yet at the same time, it's, it's things that were taught in the Old Testament, which is fascinating. I mean, you know, Jesus, the word incarnate, and essentially he's saying, look, it, to be first, you have to be last. You know, uh, when you're at a wedding feast, what you do is you don't take the honor seat, you take um, the seat that they will show you to. Um, so a lot of what Jesus taught was very counter, not just counter the Jewish culture, it was counter the Greco-Roman culture as well. And it's fascinating because I think if you look at what he taught, it all sums, is summed up in the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love one another, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I think that too encapsulates just the idea of human rights, of equality and dignity. You know, respect so you're doing and a fair bit of research and looking at China. What, what's the kind of situation with human rights or equality 
in China? Well, I think um, historically, if you look at ancient China, for example, um, Confucius, in his teachings, you'll recognize that um, he may not have termed it as human rights, but clearly Confucius in his teachings and in his conception of humanity has um, recognized the uniqueness of humanity. You know, and that's why one of the great teachings that he talks about is the noble man. And essentially what he's saying is that um, we are unique and we are special and uh, we have the ability to, uh, to be better. You know? And essentially, if you look at what he teaches, it's about human flourishing. He talks a lot about how we can be better, how society can be better if we all try to work together in community and there is a goal and a purpose that we're working towards and that's human flourishing. So I think in ancient China, definitely, there is um, a recognition of the uniqueness and the dignity of, uh, of man. What about the kind of shift into communism for the Chinese nation? How did that shift its way of thinking about the individual? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know we hear a lot of horror stories about human rights violation um, taking place in China. But what is really interesting is um, when you go back to when communism first came into the picture in China, um, now, I'm not for or against in that sense, but when you look at some of the campaigns that Mao was trying to do, the Great Leap Forward campaign, for example, that took place in 58, uh, it was really a campaign to alleviate the poverty of the people that were uh, living in the outskirts of the country. And unfortunately, um, whether there are a lot of critics who either say it has failed or it has succeeded, but regardless, I think the, the aim of that campaign was noble. Now, what is interesting is it, it, it was born out of the socialist um, system and, uh, and political system. So here's the thing, regardless of whether we acknowledge that we are made in the image of God, I think because we are, somehow we recognize that we are different and somehow we recognize there is there's meaning and purpose to life. Now, whether we are able to ground that in our worldview is a different story. And I think that's really what's happening in China today. If you look at how the country has come, like for the last, um, for the last few decades, how its uh, embrace of communism, I think, has really slowly stripped away uh, society's respect for human rights, has stripped away uh, society's um, respect for human dignity and the sacredness of human life. I can give you examples of uh, just a few years ago, there was this uh, baby formula scandal um, where businessmen basically adulterated um, infant formula with melamine and it's killed babies and 300,000 babies were affected by, by that incident, by that scandal. And today you hear all these um, horror stories um, that are truly in fact happening, like gutter oil scandal where they were reusing oil that are no longer usable. And you hear all kinds of stories about um, how a business people would do anything, including um, endangering lives of people in order to make a profit. And I think that comes from both uh, the pragmatism of uh, the Chinese people as well as this lack of um, respect and value for human life because um, profits after, uh, at the end of the day trumps the value of a human life. In that period of time, in, in that period of time, has Christianity had any influence, the teaching of Jesus, had that any influence in the Chinese culture? Because in the 50s, I know all missionaries were pushed out. Uh, the idea of religion, not just Christian religion, any religion was squashed. What happened post that? I mean, is, are the Chinese looking toward 
Christian faith and religion as a way of influencing their values? Well, I think um, at that time, what happened was the Christians were sort of relegated to, to the margins and they sort of you know, kept their heads down mostly. And I think in general, the Chinese people were very excited about this new regime you know, that promised them a better life, that promised them uh, a mission in life. And, and I think because of that, um, they were very hopeful in this new regime. But then, of course, you slowly then start, begin to see, you know, there are weaknesses and there are gaps. And I think this is, um, this is what I think the Chinese government is slowly recognizing. And a lot of the Chinese intellectuals today, both Christian and non-Christian intellectuals, are beginning to see that they, while they believe um, in how we should treat human beings, human rights, for example, dignity for humanity, for example, or the sacredness and value of human life. We should treat them that way. There's a certain way that we ought to uh, be practicing ethics. But yet at the same time, their worldview doesn't give them the foundation to, um, or give them the basis to actually um, do that according to what they believe to be true. So it's like reality that they know doesn't um, coincide with their belief system or what they've chosen to embrace to be true. Rodney Stark, one of our other guests, actually has written a book about um, religion and, and faith in China. It actually makes a point that, that Chinese um, intellectuals are looking to the West and, and, and sort of see that the foundation for Western democracies is actually um, in the, the ideas of Jesus and, and the teaching of the Christian faith. Is that your experience in interacting with them? Is that what they are seeing in, in China and looking toward the West? Oh, absolutely. I think um, so to, to a certain degree, if you look at China today, they may have um, done well to varying degrees economically, um, but they're beginning to also see the price they have to pay socially. And, uh, and I know of people, of friends who are Christians in China, who have had conversations with officials, um, and they're basically asking them, we, we need to know what you're doing right with the young people. Um, uh, because we don't know what to do with them anymore. We don't know how to help them because they recognize that there is a younger generation who, um, who have no ethical or moral bearings anymore. They would do anything just to uh, get ahead, to, just to succeed financially, but there's, there's nothing more beneath that. And you will find that Christianity in China today um, the segment of society that, is, that embraces the Christian faith most easily are the young, educated, middle-class Chinese people. Because they're educated, they are doing well. What is there to life? What more is there? And they find that um, the atheistic uh, worldview does not give them the basis um, for their personal morality. And they're finding that uh, the discipline that Christianity teaches is giving them um, the strength and the hope and, uh, and the help and the support for them to face the challenges that, um, of the, the world that is rapidly changing. Do you, do you think it, that Christian faith and, and those, those decisions by those young intellectuals, do you think that will influence the fabric of Chinese society? I'm hopeful uh, and um, it's definitely, you know, um, what a lot of us would love to see happen. Uh, and I think it is happening. Uh, we hear of a lot of um, political lobbyists and activists, um, whether Christian or not, uh, they're actually motivated by um, what the biblical worldview teaches about life, about humanity, about ethics, morality. 
Um, so it's exciting to see um, just a generation of people rising up now, um, not just merely saying this is what we ought to do, but having a foundation and a basis to, to ground that. Um, a pastor not too long ago wrote this piece about um, which compared the situation in China and, a situ uh, and an incident in, in the US. Um, it was uh, a small town in China and what happened was a, a, thief, bas a thief basically um, hijacked a car and when he hijacked the car there was a baby in the back, an eight-month-old baby if I'm not wrong. And after he drove the car off, uh, he realized there was a baby in the back. And, and, and the robber basically strangled the baby and buried her, her body just in the snow and left it be. What is interesting was uh, a similar incident happened in the United States. And the robber basically, when he found out there was a baby in the back, he abandoned the car and he actually called 911 uh, and asked them, tell them the location of the car. And, and, and you see the stark difference between these two. Um, of course, I'm sure there are a lot of factors that, that play into that. But uh, the pastor who wrote about this in an article, he basically said, what is different about this? You know, and I think he, uh, he credits it to the fact that firstly, um, you can say whatever you want about North America, but ultimately, um, it, in a lot of ways, it is grounded in the Judeo-Christian um, worldview with a lot of um, Judeo-Christian values in play over the, over the decades. And at the same time, when you look at China, it's a country that um, has policies like um, abortion, the family planning policies um, that, um, that requires that you go through an abortion flippantly. Uh, and I think that sort of informs society about the value of human life. And I think that's why it, it, it was very easy for this robber in China just to strangle a baby and let her die, because what is there to that? You know, it, it's a normal day occurrence. Mm. Ajin, we talked about the sort of Judeo-Christian teaching which has influenced the, the North America, as you said. What, what was it specifically that Jesus taught that made the difference? Well, I think most importantly is that it wasn't something radical that Jesus came up with that just necessarily what he taught in the New Testament. I mean, in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, it's all throughout there, you know, about, uh, firstly, it starts off in Genesis. It, it talks about how, you know, humanity is made in the image of God and, and just the implications from that truth. And of course, if you look at the Ten Commandments, it teaches about how, you know, the worship of just one God and, and, the, um, and, and how you treat your neighbor and, and you know, uh, your, your parents and so on and so forth. And of course, Jesus underscores that in the New Testament when he talks about the, the two greatest commandments, that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that encapsulates what it is about and everything else sort of flows out of there because I think when we recognize our relationship with God, that he is our creator and how he has created us all equal and the fact that um, our responsibility, he's the authority over us, then I think it will be very different in the way we treat one another. And that flow, that love for one another flows out of our relationship with God, flows out of our love for God. So, and, and that has all these implications about respect for one another, respect for human life, um, and uh, it has implications with regards to how we treat um, people that we don't necessarily even like or are different from us because ultimately it boils down to the fact that we're all made in the image of God. We may be different in many ways, but yet at the same time, you know, uh, we, are, 
we have the same creator. And of course, Paul, in a lot of his writings to the early church, you know, uh, teaches a lot about that as well. He talks about the body. We all have different functions, but we're all part of the body of Christ. And, and in Philippians 2, you know, this teaching about uh, humility, about how Jesus humbles himself um, and, and living among us, you know, and that all that teaches us about just um, how we ought to live uh, with one another, how we ought to live right now. And it talks a lot about our purpose and our meaning and our relationship with regards to both God and people around us and reality. Let me just follow, follow that kind of line around the humility that you mentioned. In, in Jesus' time, humility wasn't kind of seen as a virtue. What, what do you think people thought about from a leadership perspective? How, how did people believe leadership was to be carried out? No, you're absolutely right. I think among the Greco-Romans, I mean, humility was seen as a weakness and a vice. Um, service, for example, you don't serve other people, you make other people serve you. In fact, the purpose in life is to get as many people to serve you as possible. And that because it stems from the honor shame um, value uh, in their culture. And of course, even among the Jews, um, on one hand, they do understand that the, the Torah and the Old Testament teaches um, humility, but yet at the same time, if you look at how um, the Pharisees, for example, they had a lot of religious pride. So I think when, when Jesus came and he taught about you know, uh, the, the last being first and about, um, about how we need to first love God and submit to him and, you know, uh, th this was all very, uh, not this, not, it's not something that they don't already know, but it definitely goes against um, the social norm of those days. And of course, for the Greco-Romans, to, um, to be a leader, you are one of, of uh, leadership is, is measured in terms of power, status, uh, wealth. Um, it's very different from what, lead, what Jesus talks about leadership because with regards um, to leadership, Jesus taught that you serve, you humble yourself, and the feet washing is, is, is a great example of what Jesus taught about um, leadership. How do you think you have seen that as you look at church history play itself out within the church? Because the church has not always been ideal in how it's done leadership, obviously. But how do you see that play itself out? Um, you know, I think instead of just looking at church leaders or you know, uh, in the past that we know, the famous ones, uh, I like to even just look at the everyday Christian and how they've lived that out in their everyday life. Let me give you an example that is closer to home here in Singapore. There's, um, there's a medical doctor by the name of um, Dr. Tan. And um, what happened was um, he moved to China because he felt that that was the thing to do and he was called by God to do. He moved to China with his wife and with his 16-month-old baby, I think at that time. That was 20 years ago. He moved to the outskirts of Yunnan, and he um, basically set up village clinics, and he had dental, um, um, he, he gave dental services to the villagers there. And he actually became very famous, and the local officials were very pleased with him. And after 15 years, they wanted to award him with some kind of recognition. And it was at that time that he decided that he's going to move back to Singapore, you know, because he felt I wasn't there for the recognition. I was there to serve the people. I was there to be what Christ was to us. Um, as a medical doctor, you could make a lot of money and you could make a lot for yourself. 
but he's decided that he's going to move out to some small village, you know, inconvenient his family, um, because he wants to live out to live out how Christ has lived among us. So I think um, this is just one out of many stories, many people, individuals out there who's lived up this kind of leadership that Jesus taught during his days. How did the early church pick up? That's a great example. How did the early church pick up the sorts of things that Jesus taught? I mean, was there a way that the early church was different from the culture around it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think over the years, if you look at a lot of the suffrages that has taken place and um, if in, in fact, a lot of the modern, uh, modern day human rights movement was motivated by the fact um, uh, that we recognize uh, all of us are unique and therefore we have uh, certain rights that are different from other creatures, um, that there's sanctity to human life. Um, definitely, I mean, if you, if you look at some of the um, early female suffrages, you know, it was also recognizing that um, males and females are created equal. It's, it's stated in scriptures, uh, and Paul talks about, about that as well. You know, it's, there's none uh, slave and you know, the free, we're all one, we're all one in Christ. Um, so I think over the years, um, the teachings of Christ about, um, about equality, about, um, about how we're different, about how life is not just about ourselves, but about a, a certain uh, purpose and meaning and how we fit into that larger narrative has um, motivated a lot of people um, historically over the years and even today to do what they uh, believe to be right. What are some examples that you've seen of people living out the ethic of humility that Jesus taught? It's fascinating when you look at the modern missionary movement. It was really born out of uh, this a particular man who believed that this is what um, he ought to be doing. Uh, Hudson Taylor, you know, a lot of people have known what he's done in China. But it's fascinating when you see how he basically went to China, lived among the Chinese. It's just so reminiscent of what Jesus did, you know. He, he went there and unlike the missionaries of the past, he dressed like a Chinese. Um, of course, he learned the language and he lived among them, like them. And he learned the culture and he, he was culturally very Chinese. So I think just the, the humility, you know, um, that Hudson Taylor um, um, manifested or expressed, I think is a very clear example of what Jesus was talking about. And, and clearly Hudson Taylor saw Christ as the model and as the example of how he ought to have lived his life. And it's fascinating if you think about how just the results, even up to today, of what of that act of Hudson Taylor and the, the number of people who have come to know Jesus because of what he did and how he's lived his life. So Aiching, what do you think a country needs to have a good, positive, robust democracy? Well, I think uh, beyond democracy, I mean, we don't wanna have democracy for the sake of democracy. I think ultimately we are looking at democracy that would lead to human flourishing. And, um, and I strongly believe that in order for a society or a nation to flourish and do well, um, democracy is one of the things that you will need. And um, I think certainly the teachings of the biblical worldview um, gives us the foundation for that. For example, the respect and um, for the dignity of humanity, the freedom to, um, to be who we are uh, and to do good. And when I say the freedom to be who we are, it's not necessarily just to satisfy our desires, but to be able to locate our purpose and our meaning in a larger, a grander scheme of things. 
um, I think you also need uh, uh, the sense of optimism and hope um, for the things that you do. And, and I think if I look around at the different worldviews that are in the marketplace of ideas, I believe that the biblical worldview is the only one that's able to give you um, sufficiently um, the foundation and, and the belief with regards to reality for you to be able to flourish and do well. And I think that's very evident when you look at countries that, um, that have in the past um, been built on Judeo-Christian worldview values. Um, a lot of the human rights movement were born of some of these nations and some of these uh, communities. And I think it, it all, I would all credit it to uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, values and worldview. What were the, the specifics, I, I know we've already chatted about this a little, but what were some of the specifics of the Judeo-Christian worldview that are really important for human flourishing? Um, firstly, I think um, the fact that uh, there is a creator, there's a transcendent creator, and that we are created in this image. Uh, it is amazing when you look at the, the truth that we are made in the image of God. What, what does that imply? Firstly, it implies um, that we're made in the image of the Trinitarian God. And immediately, male, female, we're made in this image. So there's plurality at the same time. We are the same in terms of our essence. So we are a part of humanity, but without female or without male, we would not be complete as humanity. Um, then you look at our God, who's a, a God who is creative. He created the heavens and the earth and all of the universe out of nothing. And while we may not be able to create things um, out of nothing, but I think in a lot of ways we reflect the creativity of God because we're made in His image. Let me give you an example. For example, sand is not worth much, right? But if you think what men have made with sand, Optic fiber, fiber optic, for example, is worth, I mean, we can, would not be able to live in modern day, you know, without uh, fiber optic. Uh, so we are able to create and give value to things that, uh, to things that may not be worth a lot. So how do you see the link between what Confucian was teaching and, and Christian faith? Like, what, what, where's the links that you're discovering in that? Oh, um, it, it's for me, it's, it's one of those things that really excite me because as I read and research more into what Confucius taught, and, and when I say that, it's really one of his earlier writings and not so much the later neo-Confucianistic kind of work. Uh, what I found is, um, I think that Confucius's idea of reality is very similar to the Hebrews' understanding of reality. Now, Confucius may not, in his writings or in his teaching, explicitly talk about um, necessarily a god or a transcendent god, but it is very clear that in a lot of what he says and talks about reality, um, he, he, he has, you can see that he you can almost see that he believes that there is a transcendent God. He, in some of his writings, he talks about appealing to the Father of Heaven. He talks about praying for some, one of his disciples who is sick. Um, clearly, who would you be praying to you know, other than a, a God that you look to as, as, um, as transcendent and is, who's able to, to be helped to you? Do, um, do you think is that because Confucian look, looked at the world and said there's there's more to it. Is that, is that, was that a logical outcome of what he was seeing? Is that why he got to that point? Oh, absolutely. I think he looked around him. I mean, the time when he was living, uh, it was around 500 BC. Um, 
kingdoms were warring against each other and a lot of people were living in poverty. And he looks around him and he basically says, life could be better. We can do better than this. You know, we can rise above this. And that's why a lot of what he teaches has to do with the fact that um, we can rise above ourselves. We can strive to do better. And the two key things that, um, that are very significant in what he teaches is education. He believes that through education and through the practice of virtue, we can rise above where we are right now. We can be better. And uh, he, he often talks about this idea of a nobleman. If you investigate it and examine it against the Hebrew idea of shalom in the Old Testament, is very, very close. And essentially, I think what Confucius was getting to was human flourishing. Uh, all that he talks about, he emphasized a lot on relationship, about reconciling relationship, and ultimately that's what the gospel is about, you know, about reconciliation of relationship, about harmony uh, uh, with the people that we work with, the people that we live with. And isn't that what the gospel is about? It's about relationship. Um, so I, I definitely see a lot of similarities. But I think where Confucius was sort of uh, short on is the fact that um, Confucius taught that um, we can do it on our own. He believes that through education and practice of virtues, we can be better. But centuries of, of the embrace of Confucianism, clearly, if you look around us, we can see that we have not gone very far. And I think that's where the gospel comes in. So what does Jesus teach that makes a significant difference to what, say, Confucian was teaching? In ancient China, there's often this belief that there's going to be a son of heaven who is going to come and save them, who is going to reign in purity, who is going to reign morally, and who is going to reign right. And whenever there's a, there's a usurper who comes uh, and, and takes over the existing kingdom, they've always hoped that this is the son of heaven. In fact, the Chinese um, view of the emperor, they always call him the son of heaven. But clearly, in the past, all the sons of heaven have failed the Chinese people. And I believe that the son of heaven that is going to be of hope to the Chinese people is Jesus, because truly he is the son of God, the son of heaven. And I think this is, and that's, this is why the gospel is so beautiful and it fits right into the Chinese culture. Confucius talks about how we can be noble uh, on our own. But no, he's right about the condition of humanity. You know, we can do better, but we cannot do better than us on our own. But this is, this is the beauty of the gospel, that Chinese people, they don't need to try so hard because it has already been done by Jesus. Jesus is the son of heaven that they've been waiting for. Jesus is the, it's just like how Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews. Jesus is the son of heaven for the Chinese people. Confucius talks about how we can strive and, and do good and do well on our own. But I think that's where Confucius is wrong because we cannot. We know, if we are honest with ourselves, we know where our shortcomings are and we know that we will never be able to, to find purpose and meaning within ourselves because purpose and meaning is located elsewhere. And, it, and, and I think we find that when we, when we are able to see where we are in the larger and grander scheme of things. Last question. So the you watching this, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. So how is Jesus the Game Changer for you? You know, I've been thinking about this question. <laughs> and, um, and I can look back at my family. I would say um, I don't come from a Christian family. And uh, 
in fact, my grandfather, he was a brilliant man. He was a chemist and uh, he, he worked as a chemistry teacher. And um, to be a chemistry teacher during those days when it was the British colony is it, a pretty big deal. But instead of continuing as a chemistry teacher, he decided to uh, abandon his family, my grandmother and uh, um, four of her kids, and, uh, and left them. And he became uh, basically a, a professional con man. And he, he's, he lived an, an amazing, adventurous life of vice. And my uncle, who is um, my mom's brother, um, grew up um, just with just a single mom. And they grew up in a very Chinese village in Malaysia. And it was at this point that Christ broke into our family. He, was, he loved to play ping pong, table tennis. And one day he, came across, he, he was walking by this, this building and he heard people playing ping pong. And he thought, hey, I want to play some. He walked into this place which turned out, which turned out to be a church. And there were a couple of Christians playing table tennis and he joined them. And over time, he became a believer. And it was then that Jesus broke into our family. And it's like a domino effect, you know. Um, he was the first believer in our family, and followed by his sister. And then me, I was the third in our family who became a believer. And then my mom in her 50s became a believer. And she's a real evangelist and prayer warrior. And her sister became a believer as well. So we see this domino effect happening because Jesus uh, in his grace and his mercy broke into our family. I cannot even imagine what my uncle would be today if that hadn't happened because he could have easily walked in the path that my grandfather had. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate. 